Let's read John chapter 1 and verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God, or the King James says the only begotten Son. The Greek text actually reads the only God. Speaking of Christ, he is the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made him, the Father, known. No one has ever seen God. The Son has made him known. This verse calls our attention to the fact that no one has ever looked upon God. Think about the Old Testament. When did anyone ever behold the face of God after Adam and Eve were driven from the garden? No one has ever seen God. He is shielded in light, unapproachable by fallen human eyes. The shining radiance of God's glory distances us from him. In fact, if we entered into his presence, the radiance of his glory would consume us. We cannot approach such glory and live. And so God remains invisible to human gaze. And as such, God would have been the greatest of all unknowns in this universe, except for one thing. And that is, God did not wish to remain unknown. He wanted us to know him. And so he drew back the curtain and he condescended to reveal himself to us so that we might gaze upon the vastness of God in all of his glory and know him. It is an unspeakable privilege to know this God. How has God drawn this curtain back? So that we may look upon him and know him. Well, you know what Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is one mechanism God's used to tell us about himself so that we could know him. The sky above proclaims his great glory and his handiwork. God has revealed himself in creation and you know Romans 1 verse 20, his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived from the things that have been made. As we look even at the creation of the human body, there is many things that we can come to know about God. And people who study the scriptures in depth call this idea general revelation. That God has revealed himself generally to us. And what we mean when we talk about general revelation is basically two things. First of all, this revelation of God, him making himself known to us, he has done this for all mankind in general. Is there any human being who cannot look up at the night sky and see the glory of God? No, because we all live under that night sky. God has revealed himself to all of creation through to all human beings through creation. Psalm 19 tells us there's no speech or language where the voice of creation speaking forth the glory of God is not heard. All of mankind may know something about God through the created order. But second, this revelation that God has given us of himself, this general revelation, is general in the sense that it reveals general things about God. Man can come to know God in a general sense, but not in the level of detail that brings a man right up to God and creates a living, 
relationship of love and trust between that man and God. The created order speaks to us of a God who's so much above us and beyond us. He is a God, as we look at this world, who is inaccessible to human beings like us. How could we climb up to meet and know the God who made the stars? He is so much beyond us. And so the creation tells us nothing about how we may approach such a God and be received, how we may become acquainted with him in a relationship of of love and trust. And so in that sense, the relationship is general. And there's several ways that God has made himself known throughout history. Uh, These include the testimony of our conscience. We know something about what God thinks is right and wrong based on what our conscience tells us. We know God, as we've said, through the witness of creation. Uh, We know God, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, through his providence in history. We see him at work in the history of our world, and we understand then something about him by the way that he guides the channels and the rivers of the history of this world. But it's important for us to recognize that this general revelation is not sufficient for man to know God as he is. The problem is that the revela- the problem is not that the revelation isn't clear. It's crystal clear that a God exists, that he is powerful, that he has created a w- universe that manifests great wisdom. And yet, the problem is not that the revelation is not clear to us. The problem is that our eyes are blind. We cannot see the glory of God in creation. Man does not perceive what God has revealed. But it's not merely that man cannot see the revelation of God, but actually that he refuses to see it. And you see this in Romans chapter 1. You see this actually throughout the whole Bible. But Romans chapter 1, you can go and read verses 19 through 23. General revelation does not overcome this blindness. General revelation does not force a man's eyes open so that he can behold the glory of God. It merely speaks forth to men who have closed their eyes and refused to open them to see the glory of God. And this is why evolution prevails today. It's man's way of turning away from the revelation of God in the universe. And thus, if man is to see and know God, something more is needed. And God's desire was not simply to be known, to exist, but actually to be known in the way that human beings know one another. Not just that another person exists, but we speak of, I know that person. I have a relationship with them. God desires to reveal himself and to see those who receive that revelation respond in awe and reverence and love and trust to the being that they perceive to be there. God wants to be their God. He wants them to be his people. He wants to enter into a covenant of love and trust with them. And in order to accomplish this, in order to bring about this relationship, God must reveal himself a little more specifically than he has in general revelation. And that's why this category of revelation is called special revelation. It's more specific. If God is to be trusted, he's going to have to reveal himself to be trustworthy. And that's not anything that we can perceive in the creation of the world. If God is to be loved, he's going to have to reveal himself to be a God who loves sinners. And as the creation of the world moves forward today, we don't really get a lot of, a lot of idea from the creation of the world that God actually loves sinners. 
Love and trust. These are the categories on which relationships are built. You cannot have a relationship with someone you don't love, and you cannot have a relationship with someone you don't trust. How will we come to love and trust God? How will that relationship develop? Well, God is going to have to reveal himself in a way that man can enter into this kind of relationship with him. This is the revelation that we call special revelation. The word special just means that this revelation is specific. It's specific, first of all, in the sense that God reveals himself to us in more specific detail than in general revelation. God bridges the gap between us and himself in such a way that mankind may actually enter into a relationship with this God. He's not so far distant anymore. Now we may know him through special revelation to be a God who is trustable, to be a God we can love, who loves us. And this gives us a means to know God intimately. But secondly, this revelation is, gen is special or specific in the sense that this revelation is only available to a specific group of people. By this we mean two things. First we mean that not everybody has access to this revelation. For example, God has revealed himself in dreams and visions in the past, but only to specific people. Not everybody had those dreams and visions. And unlike general revelation, which is available to all people, this revelation then is available only to specific people. You think about the translation of Scripture. Not every person possesses God's revelation of himself in the Scripture in their own tongue. God has made that available only to some. We wish that it were for all and we work towards that goal, but that is the way that God has made this world at this present time. There have been whole periods of history when only a small handful of people possessed a copy of the scriptures. God's special revelation is available only to specific groups of people. And secondly, by special revelation, we mean that God accompanies this revelation. Not only does he reveal himself, but he also accompanies that with his work to open the eyes of those he gives it to so that they may see and enter into relationship with him. This revelation actually overcomes human willful blindness. And that's why you see God. That's why you have embraced him. That's why you love him and trust him. Because he has opened your eyes to see what nobody else can see, and that is that he is a God of love. He is a God who is worthy of trust, who is worthy of your trust. He is a God who is good. And thus this special revelation is sufficient for salvation because it reveals God as one to whom we may relate. And it also, in it, God works to overcome man's blindness. Thus special revelation leads men to a saving knowledge of God. The revelation God gives actually brings men to God. It restores the relationship. Now, why God would dispense this revelation only to specific people is another question for another day. Okay, we can talk about that later, why God has only given this revelation to certain people. But at this point, it ought to be clear to us that God is the sovereign dispenser of this revelation and thus of salvation. And he has sovereignly bestowed it where he wishes. The potter has the power over the clay. And we are the clay, Paul tells us. 
But how does this revelation of God come to us? How does God reveal himself so that we may know him? Well, the giving of dreams and visions was one mode in the Old Testament. The ministry of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles is another. Their preaching, public preaching and their writings, which we call the scriptures, is another mode in which God has revealed himself to us in a way that we may know him and be saved. But let's look at Hebrews 1. I just want to show you a contrast here. I know you really don't know where we're going at this point, and that's okay. It'll all become plain in just about 10 minutes, okay? Just follow what we're working with here for a little bit more. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke... Okay, there's revelation. God spoke. He revealed himself. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. How did that happen? That's our question. How does God reveal himself to us? Well, long ago, many ways, many means, he spoke to the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This verse divides human history into two different periods. There was long ago and the but now. Long ago, how did God reveal himself? Many ways, many means through the prophet, but now there is only one mode of special revelation by which God has spoken to us today. Specifically, this revelation comes to us through the Son. In the Old Testament, the prophets, beginning with Abel and Enoch, prophet who prophesied that God would come with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all. The special revelation came through Moses, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. God gave the law through Moses. He gave the sacrificial system to reveal himself. It came through Samuel. It came through David. It came through Isaiah and Micaiah and Ezekiel. And finally, the last of the old covenant prophets, John the Baptist. This is how God revealed himself in many ways, many different forms of revelation. That's how God spoke to our fathers. But in these last days, God has chosen to use a different mode of revelation. He has spoken to us by his son. That's why John 1.18 says what it does. No one has ever seen God, but the son has made him known to us. The ministry of the son is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself. The God who pulled back the curtain so that we might know him. He has most fully disclosed himself. He has most intimately revealed himself to us by sending his son. The one who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Listen to this little interchange between Christ and Philip in John 14. You're welcome to turn there or you can listen. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The word that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. If you heard Jesus of Nazareth speaking, 
Whose voice were you actually hearing? If you saw him perform miraculous deeds, what were you actually seeing? It's the Father in him who does the work. So to know Jesus Christ is to know the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Moses had foretold the coming of a prophet like this. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Now, that's pretty different than Moses, right? Moses gave them the revelation of God. Did Israel listen? Before Moses even dies, he's already prophesying, you're going to turn away. You're going to go your own way. But I will raise up a prophet, God says, and you will listen to him. He's going to reveal my ways to you. And he's also going to transform you so that you respond to me. This is going to be the ministry of the prophet. And the New Testament picks this up in many passages. You can look at your cross-references in Deuteronomy 18 and find all the times when that passage is called to our attention in the New Testament. The striking thing is that the apostles pick up on when they quote this prediction concerning the coming of this prophet is that the people would actually listen to him. Moses reveals, but his revelation of God through the law and the sacrifices don't actually bring the people to God. This prophet will reveal God, and you'll actually listen to him, and you will respond, and you will love and trust this God. How is this going to happen? This is the promise of the new covenant. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my ways. You will be my people and I will be your God. This is what God will do for us in Christ. The new covenant will be successful, stunningly successful. Where the old covenant was a spectacular failure, human flesh could not of itself respond to God's revelation through Moses. But in Jesus Christ, that blindness is broken down by the Spirit. And we have the possibility of being restored to God through the revelation of this prophet. He will will create a relationship between sinful human beings and an infinitely holy God. He will be the prophet greater than Moses and the people will listen to them. Listen to him. He will actually bring men to God. 1 Peter 3.18 But how is the son going to reveal the father? Okay, we're just kind of Narrowing down here to what we want to look at really for the next three weeks here. How is the Son who comes going to reveal the Father to us? Well, how is God going to draw back the curtain by sending His Son? And there are three answers to that question when you look at what the Son did when He came. The first answer is what we saw in John 1 verse 18. No one has seen God... The only begotten God is at the Father's right hand, has revealed him. How did the Son reveal the Father to us? He was God himself come in flesh, and thus in the person of the Son. We have the Father revealed to us. God opens up himself to human gaze by coming to us and walking in our midst in human flesh. And no man had seen God at any time in the Old Testament, but now he's walking around the dusty roads of Palestine and everybody can look upon him. The son in his person sets God before human gaze that we might know him. 
And that's why Jesus can say to Thomas, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The second way that the Son reveals the Father to us is in his teaching. Jesus Christ came down from heaven and his primary activity was teaching. He went about, he said, let's go to the next towns. I know everybody's looking for me to work a miracle. Let's go to the next town so I can teach because that's what I came for. That's Mark 1, 35 through 37. The words that came from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth told us a great many things about God. For example, that our Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 45. That he exalts the humble. That he is pleased to give the kingdom to Christ's disciples. In his teaching, Christ revealed to us the Father. But there's a third mode whereby the Son has revealed to us the Father, not only by his person and by his teaching, but the works of the Son. What he did while on this earth gave mankind a window through which to look to see the glory of God. See, for example, in the works of Christ, works of power, we see the power of God on display. Now, the scripture gives us four gospels that each detail the life of Jesus of Nazareth as he walked about on this earth. He lived for 33 years. The Gospels give us very little detail about those first 30 years. 33 years, the majority of the Gospels don't even talk about the first 30 of them. It's those last three that receive the primary attention. And if you read the Gospels, you'll notice something striking about the attention on those last three. And that is that actually the majority of their attention is on the last week of that man's life. If you read John's Gospel, he devotes nearly 45% of his entire gospel to that one week. If Jesus Christ has come to reveal to us the Father and the gospels focus on that week, it must be during that week that the Father is most readily revealed to us. And in fact, during that week, they focus their attention on a single day, a single event, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. And thus it would seem that Christ's work of suffering and death, like no other event in his 33 years, draws aside the curtain so that in that event, in the cross, we may see the glory of God. How does the cross reveal to us the Father? Well, as you read through the events of the crucifixion in the four Gospels, it's striking that God is never said to act apart from once or twice. He's largely absent from those scenes. Where is he to be seen in the crucifixion? Well, Christ knew because the night before in the garden, he prayed, what, Father, if you are willing, let the cup pass. But the cup did not pass. And so what transpired on that day was the will of God. As you watched the scene of the cross unfold, it was the will of God on public display. If we listen closely to Christ's prayer in the garden, we determine, we discern that the actions of Pilate, of Herod, the soldiers, the Jews, those were really the actions of God. In the condemnation of Pilate, we hear the condemnation of the Father. 
in the jubilant pleasure of the soldiers who struck the hammer blows, we see coming to pass what the prophet Isaiah had foretold, that the Lord was pleased to crush him. It was the Lord laying upon him the iniquity of us all. And so the cross is the greatest display of God's glory to date. In all of human history, if you wanted to see the glory of God on its most stunning display, where would you look? You would look at the cross. The God of the universe was unveiling himself before human eyes as a blood-stained man, his own son, hung naked upon a rugged Roman cross amidst that taunting crowd. And yet for so many, the scene is lost to them. They see no glory. They look upon the cross and they turn their eyes away dismissively. Where is the glory of God on display in the cross for men to see? Where do we look and what do we see as we gaze upon Jesus of Nazareth hanging upon that tree? How is that the revelation of God? What is he saying to us through the cross? Well, theologians who carefully study Scripture have concluded that every attribute of God that we find in Scripture, every one of them was on display that day in the cross to an unparalleled degree in the history of the world. If you wanted to see the ultimate, ultimate revelation of any one of God's attributes, the ultimate revelation was on that day when Jesus of Nazareth died. And over the course of the next three weeks, I want us to look at three of God's attributes that are revealed in the cross. We'll spend a significant amount of time working to understand how the cross reveals that particular attribute. And we'll spend nearly as much time each week examining how we must live before the God that we see in the cross. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, It is as we behold the glory of God that we are transformed into the same image. Where do we see the glory of God revealed? Four verses later, in the face of Jesus Christ. And two verses after that, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is in the cross that we see the glory of God on display. And thus it is the cross that trains us how to live before this God. It reveals to us this God, calling us to love Him, calling us to trust Him, calling us to live in light of who he is. So I want to show you six texts of scripture today that reveal to us in the cross the love of God. Three of these texts will show us how the cross reveals the love of God and three of them will show us how we ought to respond. How does the cross reveal God as a God of love? And what does it mean to live as children of this God? What does it mean to live as disciples of the one who went to the cross to reveal to us the Father's love? Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is probably the first verse that jumped into your mind. Romans 5, verse 8, God's love is displayed in the cross to an unparalleled degree. We'll start in... Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What is the love of God? Whatever it is, God showed it to us at the cross. Christ's death was not the love of God, but in Christ's death, God showed us his love. God's love motivated him to act in our interest and for our benefit. Christ died, the end of the verse, for us. He died with our best interests in mind. He died on our behalf. He died, Mark 10.45, to serve us. We were the benefactors of his death. And God's love cost him everything. It cost him the life of his firstborn son. The firstborn son in ancient times was the father's life. He was the offspring of the father's youthful strength. He was the hope of the father's future. The one who would care for the father in his old age. He was the one who would carry on the father's name. He was the son of the father's right hand. He was the one who would inherit all that the father would bequeath to him. He was the father's hope that his life and legacy would continue. God offered up his own son for us. And this is what John, 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10 is getting at. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In what? In that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love is not like human love. Paul directly contrasts the two in Romans 5. What he says in verse 7 is this, it's, it's difficult for us to conceive of someone giving away his life for the, the, for, for the sake of a righteous person, someone who's innocent, they don't deserve to die, yet they are just about to. And would you step in and substitute your life for theirs? That would be an act of, of great love. But it doesn't happen very frequently. On the other hand, Paul says, someone who is good, they're not just innocent, set at zero on the meter. They're actually good. They've been but a kind, generous, beneficent person. For that kind of a person, someone might dare to die in order that that person might continue to live his life of goodness towards other men. But for an enemy, would you give up your life? Would you give up your life, the life of your son, your firstborn son, for an enemy who had wronged you? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this display of love is breathtaking. We have never witnessed this on earth amongst fallen human beings. 
And Jesus himself calls our attention to this fact in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the greatest love that we've seen, that we would lay down our lives for our friends. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The height of human love is to lay down our lives for our friends, but God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the death of Christ upon the cross, we see the love of God for his enemies blazing forth in a glorious display of unparalleled beauty and glory. Our conception of love as human beings is a conception of love as a balanced exchange. Ariel and I have had some conversations about this. You serve another person and you want the scales to be balanced. You don't want to, you, you, you're, 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 you're not prepared to love somebody who's not going to return that benefit to you in some way. E even those that we love the most, we love them because it works better for us. We maintain a relationship and serve them out of duty because they have served us. Our love is a love of balanced exchange. Our love seldom originates with us. A young man who sets his love upon a woman, that might be the right kind of love that we want to have in view. He's not setting his love upon that woman tentatively wondering if she's going to reciprocate. He determines to set his love upon her regardless. That is what God has done. It's not an exchange. God set his love upon us. He is the origin of that love and our love never originates within ourselves. My love for someone is always tinged with a little bit of their love for me as the origin and cause and driving force of that love. But not so with God. Enemies. There was nothing coming his way. And yet he loved us while we were still sinners. And we hear a whisper of this love in Christ's breathless prayer, Father, forgive them. You only forgive sinners. He is being crucified by sinners, receiving nothing from them but mistreatment. And yet his prayer is, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. It is at the cross that we see the grandest and most humbling display of God's love for us is love in Christ Jesus. So how must we respond? Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, verse 19. How do we live in a world where this God is the God who reigns over all things? How do we live in this world where this God has revealed himself to me? Verse 19, 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. Our love to God is tied to his love for us. Does the first and greatest commandment scare you? 
love the Lord your God with all your heart. You ever worked really hard to try to drum that up in yourself? Our love for God does not originate in us. Our love for God originates in Him. And we respond to His great love displayed to us. And we love Him because He loved us first. He is the great source and spring of all love, including our own love back to Him. As we look upon the cross and gaze upon the glory of God's love displayed there by stages, you will be transformed into that same image and you will love God to greater and greater degrees. You will come to a greater love for the God who loved you first. And so God's love is the great wellspring from which all of our love for him flows. It's, it's not as though we must muster up in ourselves on our own some affection for God. We cannot do that. God loved us, and our love is a response to his. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5 for the second response. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. God has loved us. We are his beloved children. Therefore, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Has the second greatest commandment ever confronted you? Have you ever felt weak and impotent before the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself? What about Christ's commandment in John 13, to love one another as I have loved you? That's an awful lot of love to bestow on God's people, isn't it, whom he loves? How does that happen? Be imitators of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us. What does that walking in love look like? Well, look at chapter 5, verse 1, the first word, therefore connects us back to what's just come before. What does it look like to walk in love towards one another? Verse 25 of chapter 4, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. That's not the one who lives next door to you. That's other members of the body of Christ because, end of the verse, we're members one of another. You're not members of your neighbor, but you are members of the body of Christ alongside other believers. This love means... Being angry but not sinning, not letting the sun go down upon your anger. It means no longer stealing but working, laboring, doing honest work so that you have something to share with anyone in need. You see a brother or sister in the body of Christ in need. What has God done in seeing us in our need? Why do we labor? So that we may have something to share with anyone in need. Loving one another means letting no corrupt talk come out of our mouths, but only what is good for building up. Ministering grace, giving grace to those who hear. It means do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Say, so what's that got to do with one another? Well, how are we bound together by the Holy Spirit? Don't grieve him by doing something at variance with his uniting work. Don't, don't grieve him in that way. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another. Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. If God has loved us, brothers, sisters, we ought to love one another. John picks this up in his epistle, 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Little children, let us not love in word or deed, word or talk, but in deed and in truth. His love is the source of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And thirdly, let's look at Romans 8. Do you ever find it hard to love another person who's unlovely? It's generally because you don't think of yourself as the unworthy recipient of God's love. We generally think of ourselves as worthy recipients of God's love, and that person's not a worthy recipient of my love, so why should I love them? And we love unworthy recipients because that's where we are. And God's love drives us in that direction. Let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, then is there anything he would not freely give to you? The freedom of God's love displayed in the cross encourages us as Christians that we will not lack anything. How do you live in a universe before a God who gave up his own son for you? It means you live in the hope that he will care for you, giving you all things that you need freely. The freedom of God's love displayed in the cross encourages us that we will not lack anything. The path then to contentment and peace in the midst of challenging circumstances where we feel a great lack. When we feel a great lack, like something is missing. The path to contentment and peace is to look at the cross. In other words, the path to love is to behold the love of God. Gaze upon the cross, take long looks at the Christ who hung upon the cross to reveal to us the love of God. And then live in light of that cross. The Father has revealed his love in the cross and he urges us to imitate our Father in this. A theologian of past centuries writes, this he says evil is so deeply rooted in our hearts that if we were told of our duty it only half moves us we are so evil that we need more than just simply to know what is our duty knowing my duty alone does not motivate me to perform it for this reason, 
St. Paul sets the example of God before us here. He's talking about Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. He has forgiven us in his only Son. And without delay, he adds our Lord Jesus Christ, who spared not himself when it was a question of our redemption and salvation. What then can break down all hardness in us? What can mortify all our excessive passions? This was written a while ago. By passions, he means frustrations and, 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 and anger that I don't have what I need. What, what's going to put all that to rest? What can break down all this hardness in us and mortify our excessive passions? What can correct all of our cruelty towards other human beings? What can bring us low in all of our pride and loftiness? What can sweeten all of our bitterness in the midst of circumstances? It is this, to contemplate what God has done toward us. He has so loved the world that he has given up his only son to death for us. I think the reason that we as Christians struggle so many times to live securely in God's love is that we do not discern that love through the cross. And what I mean by that is this. You can go and read the Old Testament and God will say many times to Israel that he loves them. But your conscience will always get the better of you. He loves me? Of course not. He loved Israel, and look where they ended up, and I'll end up there too, in captivity. But when we discern God's love through the cross, suddenly our conscience is quieted. We can trust a God to love us who gave up his own son for us. And so you can't read about the love of God in the Psalms without thinking of Jesus Christ. You can't read about the love of God to Israel without thinking, I have it in Christ. And in that, our consciences are settled. You struggle to love God. Does the first and great commandment haunt you? Where will you draw strength to rise up and fulfill it, to love God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? The answer is you will be transformed to love God as you look at his glory in the cross. Do you struggle to love your fellow man? Does the second great commandment haunt you? Where will you draw strength to rise up and fulfill it? To love your neighbor as yourself. The answer is to look at the cross. Do you struggle with whether or not God's care for you will be sufficient? Our sins tell us and our conscience tells us we ought to struggle, and the cross tells us we ought not. The cross tells us that God's love for us is settled. So gaze upon the glory of God displayed in Christ, and you will be transformed. Even as by the Spirit of the Lord, Paul says, and what is the first of the fruits of the Spirit? It is love. So next week we will look at the righteousness of God displayed in the cross, and the third week, we will look at the sovereignty of God displayed in the cross. And those three, I think, those three taken together, when you see those three displayed at the cross, 
they form a nearly unbreakable cord. There's no loopholes. If God loves and he is sovereign and he is righteous, he's going to do the right thing. He's going to act in my interest. He's not just going to run me over in his quest to do the right thing. And he has the power to actually bring it about. He is sovereign. And so the cross revealing those three things to us, I think God's intention is to settle us, to trust him, to love him, and to walk with him. Lord, thank you for giving us your son for showing us your love beyond measure and for showing it to sinners like us in the cross we see not merely your love set upon Christ we see it displayed toward us And I pray, Lord, that you would give us a firm foundation on which to stand this week. Your love for us is unbreakable just because it is for Christ's sake and not on the basis of anything we have done. Lord, help us to flee to you in times of temptation. Help us to run to you when we are afraid. And help us always to come to you in humility, but compelled to come by the cross. I pray that what we look at in the weeks to come would give us greater confidence and trust in you. Help us, Lord, to love you. Help us to trust you. And we ask these things in Christ's name.